Uh, we are going to be looking today in Hebrews chapter 9. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 is kind of a long chapter. I'm breaking it up some. And uh, it is a chapter also that he is, he is this is not going to be news to you if you've been in, this, been in this for a long time. He is revisiting themes that he has already gone over. He's doing that because it's so important for him to make sure they get it straight. Because if they don't get it straight, it leads to error, it leads to, to uh, problems. And so we have this book. <clears throat> we have this book that, that's dealing with uh, the mortal and the immortal. We're dealing with the temporal and uh, the eternal. It's dealing with finite and infinite. And he's kind of saying, which will you choose? Which are you going to choose for your life? Are you going to choose mortal things or immortal things? Are you going to choose temporal things or eternal things? Are you going to choose finite things or infinite things? And we are constantly bombarded. You know, and this is not a rant necessarily about our culture. It's just the way it is anywhere in the world. We are constantly bombarded with finite things and temporal things and things that will not matter in the long run. And we are in a constant battle to figure out what is most important and what is least important. What should we be putting our life into and what should we not be putting so much of our life into? And in the book of Hebrews, he is, the writer is, I say he and I don't even know that, the writer, we don't know who the writer is, hammers this over and over and over in a lot of different ways. And so today, we're going to look at it. We'll go to, uh, let's see, the first slide. Yeah, the, uh, the thing isn't working. That thing is not working. <laughs> that thing is the bane of my life, I think, in a lot of ways. We're going to look at God's eternal work, Hebrews 9, 9 through 14. Next slide. Um, and the first point I want you to see, just two points today, is it's an eternal and internal cleansing. He's going to say there is this cleansing for us that is eternal, and most importantly, it is not most important, but importantly, it is internal. And we have to get that straight because Jesus went to the cross and Jesus purchased something at the cross for us. And we're, he's looking at what Jesus has done, what Jesus has purchased. And he's, his first point is this, it's an eternal and internal cleansing. All right, so next slide. We're gonna look at verses nine and 10 here. This is an illustration for the present time. He's looking back at what he's been saying, what we looked at last week. This illustration, he's been talking about the tabernacle. He's been talking about the priest. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. Now, he's been telling him the new order is here, right? So he's saying you had before, you have before this thing, this tabernacle, and the priests were ministering, the high priest was going in once a year. All this was happening. And he says, this was temporary. This was just external. Let me, let me just rehearse. We, we talked about it some, but just rehearse. That one day a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he only went one day a year to, to offer he offered a sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood of the, of the animal that was sacrificed to cleanse, to cover the sins of the people. And he had to do it every year because no one stopped sinning. And, and that was just a covering. And so what would he do? Um, 
Uh, next slide. We'll go to that. Um, this is what the high priest would wear in his normal, everyday ministration for the people at the temple. But the one day a year, when he went into the Holy Holies, he would not wear this. It would be totally different. This is super elaborate. It has precious stones. It has gold, real gold trim on it and all this other. And it, was, and it all meant something. We could go into, and yeah, that could be multiple sermons just on the priestly robes and what they mean and what they illustrated. But he would do this. He would go through this preparation when he, one day a year, he'd start at least a week beforehand, and he would uh, go into seclusion just by himself for a week, not touch anyone because he didn't want to get unclean, all right? He would fast and pray for that week to, to try to make himself right before God. The night, this is interesting, isn't it? The night before he went into the Holy of Holies, he would stay up all night and pray. Does that remind you of some other high priest? I hope so. I hope so. Okay. All right? He would get the nation of Israel be told, pray for the high priest this week. Pray for the high priest this week because he goes into the Holy of Holies. And, and this, they took this seriously because it was serious. They took it seriously because if he didn't prepare adequately, if he didn't do exactly as God said, he might die in there. This is how important this was. On the last day, when he was ready to, getting ready to go, he would wash three times to make sure without a doubt that he is clean. And then he would put on these, they were costly, but they were just pure white garments. He wouldn't wear the elaborate. He wouldn't wear, I'm pointing down at the slide that's down here, but that's, <laughs> I don't know why. He wouldn't wear this elaborate outfit. He would wear just, just white, only white, to say, I'm clean. I'm clean. I'm going in before God. And what's interesting is we have in some of the writings about how different high priests uh, got ready for this and how they reacted. Because he's going in to make atonement for the sins of the people. He's going into the very presence of God. Anything unclean is struck. So he has to be all this, all this, all this stuff just to get clean. And all of it is a picture, right? All of it is a picture for them and for us and how unclean we are, and how hard it is to get clean enough to go in front of God. That's what he's trying to, we're trying to see. And so what he's trying to show us, God is showing us this. And we, we have uh, in, in some writings about this, they would say, when he came out, it would be like, yes, 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 I'm alive. You know, it would be, I made it. They would be so excited. Oftentimes they said the high priest would have this big celebration with his family and his closest friends because he made it. He got through. I wasn't struck dead. I thought this day maybe, you know? And it, it, they would be so excited. Why? Because this was so serious to them. This is how serious this is to them. And the writer is reminding the readers, this is so important. Animal sacrifice for the sins of people was a temporary covering. And I know for us in our 21st century sensibilities, this whole idea of sacrificing and animals, ew, ugh, bloody. And what, what is the point? Because there is life and death involved in the way we live, the things we think, our behavior, our sins. It's life and death. He's telling us this. And so it's, 
It's with these matters of life and death. He's reminding his readers, this didn't take care of the problem. It just covered it. You know, they would do the whole thing. We talk about it so much. I, I know I feel sometimes I repeat too much, but he would sacrifice there. Then they would go out, and then he would pray on the head of another uh, a goat, a lamb, and he would pray, and, and in a symbol, the symbolism would be the sins of the whole nation were transferred to that lamb. And then they would lead that lamb, because that lamb is now a nuclear lamb. It's got the sins of the whole nation for a whole year on it. And, and that, they, they believe that was like a physical thing. It's really got them. So we got to get rid of that lamb. But God said, no, don't kill that lamb. Don't you kill that lamb. You just take it out into the wilderness. Take it out in the wilderness and then let it go. All right, he says, this is a picture of what I'm going to do. There's going to be a day when your sins are going to go out and never come back. But the Jews recognized the problem, right? Lambs can wander back. So then what they did was, we're not allowed to kill it. This guy's a Gentile. Hey, dude, give you a couple bucks. Take this lamb out in the wilderness. Find a cliff. Boot it off the cliff so it doesn't wander back. Because it's a nuclear lamb. You don't want to wake up in the afternoon next day and there's a nuclear lamb in your backyard. You don't want that. So they arrange this. Why? Because it, God's taking him and he's making them see the symbolism of what he is going to do through Jesus. What he has done for us. Over and over in the Old Testament, God told them what he was doing. He told them he was going to send his son. He told them the Messiah is coming. They often did not listen because it did not fit their ideas of who they were and who God was. But over and over, we see this. Let me just share one with you because I think this is, this is an interesting one. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have this situation. Zechariah is getting this vision. God gives him this vision. And the high priest at that time was a man named Joshua. Joshua is simply Jesus in Hebrew. So he, he, his, his name was Jesus. It wasn't a super uncommon name, so it's not that un, unreasonable. Jo, but Zechariah says this. He says, this is what I saw. I saw Joshua the high priest standing before, and this was important, standing before the angel of the Lord. When you see the angel of the Lord, not a angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord is Jesus. It's over and over and over in the Old Testament. We see things where it fits back and forth with the New Testament, the angel of the Lord. So here's Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing in front of God. He's standing in front of God, okay? So think like a Jewish person would. You'd go, when does the high priest stand before God? It must be the day of atonement, young before. It must be that one day a year. He's standing before God. And then he says, and Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. And God said to him, take off those clothes. Because imagine Zechariah, right? He's a godly Jew. He sees the high priest in front of God. Filthy, filthy dirt and stains on his clothes. And he's just horrified. He's going to be struck dead right now in my vision. This is going to be a short vision. You know, the, the, the person I'm looking at is going to be struck dead. It must, this must be what's going to happen. And God says, take off those filthy clothes. Take off those filthy clothes. And he says to Joshua, God says, see, I have taken away your sin. 
and I will put fine garments on you. And he talks about that a little bit. And then the Lord Almighty says, listen, high priest Joshua. And he talks about there's the you and these people who here are symbolic of things to come. All right? This is symbolic of what is coming. And he says this, I'm going to bring my servant. And over and over and over, the Messiah is, is called my servant. Other people can be too, but then he says this, the branch. And now we have a clue because the branch in the Old Testament is about four times references Jesus the Messiah coming. He goes, I'm going to bring my servant, Joshua. You were filthy. I've made you clean. And here's how. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. And see, I've set a stone in front of you. And Jesus is called the stone, the chief cornerstone, the stone that the whole foundation is built upon. And he says, I'm going to engrave an inscription on that stone. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And he uses the word, that word remove. It's not the word to cover. It's the word that it's gone. It's gone. So in Zechariah chapter 3, in our Old Testament, in the Jewish Bible, we have one of the many times where he talks about Jesus and tells them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to remove the sin of the whole land just like that. Just like that. And then in verse 10, he uses an entry. He says, in, in that day, you invite your neighbor to sit under your tree, under your vine and your fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And I read that and I was like, what? But to them, this is this idea that we are at peace now because at this point in time, they've been through wars. They've been through being captured. Their whole, their whole world has been turned upside down. And he says, when I do this, you're gonna know real peace. You're gonna know real peace. That's what he's offering us. This is what he's telling them. He's been telling them all along throughout the Old Testament. All of this is temporary. All of this is a covering, but I'm going to make it right. I'm going to do it, and it's going to be taken care of once and for all. This is a great lesson for us because we sometimes can get so comfortable with our life so comfortable with our ideas of what reality is and how we relate to it that we let our relationship with God suffer because we're comfortable. It's easy to fall into. And he's warning, in Zechariah chapter three, he's warning them, and he's warning, through that he's warning us. So we have these temporary coverings. They couldn't clear the conscience. He tells us that in that passage. He couldn't clear the conscience. So the sins are still around. The sins are still remembered. But then God says, but I'm going to clear your conscience. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, how much more then will the blood of Christ? Right, so he's been talking about the high priest. He's been talking to them about this stuff. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will he cleanse our consciences from, the, from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? He says, I'm going to cleanse. This word cleanse means to make it pure. He says, I'm going to cleanse your conscience. I'm going to make it pure. Why do our consciences need to be cleansed? Why do they need to be made pure? Because of guilt. Now, we could go into a huge thing on guilt. And I understand sometimes people have guilt over things they should never. I understand all of that. understand that as we... You understand that too as we go through this, but there's subjective guilt. That is, I feel guilty. 
And there's objective guilt. That is, I am guilty. Now, some, lots of people have done a lot of work and thought and teaching and studying on this. Uh, Freud really went into the whole thing of this idea of subjective guilt. Martin Buber um, was one of the, I, you know, when I went to graduate school, we read some books. And I can remember, you ever get that when whatever, high schoolers, whatever, college students, you're in a class, you read a book, and you go, I will never, ever use any of this. This is a total waste of my time, right? You ever feel that way? I felt that way when I, when I was reading some of the philosophers, and now all of a sudden I'm going, Martin Buber, I remember reading about him. I remember thinking, this is a waste of my time. Maybe it wasn't. So there's this subjective guilt, there's objective guilt, and I'm making it, I'm simpli, sim, making it simple. We struggle with both. Sin is at the core of both. There is a spiritual uncleanness in us as human beings that has to be dealt with. Our culture says this kind of guilt, especially this subjective guilt, it's psychological. So we're not going to judge you, you know, because you have to decide what's right or wrong for you. And we'll help you not feel guilty. And one writer said that we must detach. I read a guy and he said, we must detach our conscience from ideas of morality. So you may, be, you may feel guilty about something, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're guilty. And so we're going to help you get rid of that feeling. Guilt is a huge thing. I, I saw um, a couple years ago, it was a special, it was a, a documentary, a short documentary, and it caught my eye um, for a couple of reasons. But anyways, it was about how in... The country of Iceland, basically, the number of babies born with Down syndrome is about zero. And they were saying the reason is because now, through genetic testing, they can tell people ahead of time, your baby's going to have Down syndrome. And so when that happens, and this, this, was a, this was a documentary, this was very pro this, okay? They weren't against this, they were very pro this. But what struck me is, then what happens is, if they determine that your baby may have Down syndrome, they, they make you get counseling. And the counseling is, it's okay to abort this baby. You can do that. And, you know, we'll, you go try again. Try for another. Try for another baby. And so there's, there's this subtle, and they, 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 they're quick to say, we tell people, if you want to have the baby, you can have the baby. But the best thing for you and for your family is not to. And here's the thing. Here's what goes on behind this. What goes on behind this is the minister in Iceland for Health and Education admitted, man, our costs on helping families take care of Down syndrome children have gone way down. We're saving a lot of money. And so, that's what's happening, right? But here's what the revealing part was. The, the minister of, of, of health and ed- education there said, they, they said, do, you, do, do some of the women struggle with feeling guilty? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But we tell them, you shouldn't feel guilty at all. Don't feel guilty. And then she said, but quite a few still feel guilty. Isn't that interesting? Why? Society tells them, don't feel guilty. You should feel no guilt in this situation. And they still do. And they still do. 
So we, we, we struggle with this. We can struggle with guilt in so many things. That's one tiny particular thing. And let me just say real quick, I understand that whole situation is fraught with all kinds of issues and problems. So I'm not judging people in, per se, and I'm not sitting here looking down on people per se, but it does strike me that people still feel guilty. And it also does strike me that the state stands to gain if people abort those children. Those are two very difficult issues, and uh, I don't want to minimize them, all right? So one writer says, we should detach our conscience from ideas of morality, but the problem is we still feel guilty. That's the problem, and we're not sure sometimes why we're feeling guilty. And I know, you know, we hear people say there's no God, so there's no sin, so morality is like this construct that society dictates, and yet time after time, we see people saying, I still feel wrong. I still feel bad. I have this sense of condemnation. One of the, no, I, I, it's not, I'm not trying to name drop, but I, I, I read uh, Kafka at one point. He's saying that. He's saying there's, there's no God. There's no morality. There's none of that. But why do I still feel bad? Why do I still feel guilty? And it's because, man, you can't get away from it. And sometimes we know why we feel guilty. That's my problem. I don't know about you, but my problem is sometimes I'm going to God and I'm confessing sin to him and I'm saying, God, I don't deserve anything because this is 100% my fault. There's no mistake here. There's no accident. I didn't accidentally steal that money. You know, there's none of that. This is just me messing up my life and I'm guilty. And Jesus says, I want to cleanse you of that. I want to cleanse you of that feeling of guilt that you're not sure why, and I want to cleanse you of the object and the subject. I want you to cleanse you of both. And I know sometimes people say, oh, bring Jesus into that. Great, that just means more guilt. I know. I know some of you have been brought up that way. But the truth is this is liberation from guilt when we bring Jesus into it. This is the cleansing. Some guilt is just a false accusation. Maybe, maybe your parents wanted you to be really successful. When I was working with teenagers, I had this teenager and his parents desperately wanted him to be very successful. And they threw everything they could into making him very successful. Everything, and he knew it. And they told him all the time, this is what we want you to be. And he just kept, he'd come to me and say, Bob, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. There's, no, there's nothing in me that thinks that's attractive in any way. I hate it. And I'm, oh man, it's so hard to deal with that because it's his parents. And just struggling with the guilt of saying, thinking that I am not going to do, how do I tell them? I, and he hadn't told him yet. He hadn't told him yet. He went to college. He still wasn't going to tell him. I'm not going to do what they want me to do. And he felt guilty. So there's this guilt. It's, sometimes it's kind of a false accusation. It's not, there's, there's nothing right behind it. And what does the Bible say about that? The Bible says this. The Bible says God looks at our heart. He doesn't look at our success, whether we're successful or not. He looks at a man and a woman's heart. And so we can get a cleansing from that. And then we judge that to be false. It's not from God. It's not the truth. But if you have said, say, let's say you've cheated someone out of some money, that's objective guilt. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, bear the responsibility for it. Repent of your sin, make amends, ask forgiveness. 
That's what it says to do. And there you will find cleansing. And so we come to an important thought. Let's go to the next slide. Relief from guilt involves learning the truth and putting it into action. This is where you find relief from guilt, from those things that you can struggle with so much. Learning the truth, all aspects of the truth, and putting it into action. And, and re- telling yourself what the truth says. I find that's true for me. It helps with me sometimes. I start thinking about something. I get very negative. I start going, I'm such, I'm such a loser. And I say, wait a minute. What's the truth here? What's the truth here? The truth is I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ and I am not a loser. The truth is I'm a son of the king and he loves me. That is so important for us as we deal with these things. So that's the first point. Second point is the next slide. We have an eternal and internal cleansing. This next point, we have an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. Next slide. Verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, okay, they're here right now, he's saying, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. So there's something eternal about it. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. Something eternal about it. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So he's hammering us with that. He wants us to see that this is important for them, important for us, And it's something we need to still talk about today because it's talking about eternal, not external. Verse 10, you know, he's already said, it's all these things that are external, they're temporary. Now he's saying, understand, eternal. All that stuff with the the tabernacle back in Exodus, back when they were in the wandering, the tabernacle was built by human. God told them, do it this way, but it was built by human beings. It was built with human hands. They sewed the tapestries, and, and it wasn't perfect because it was built by human beings, so it couldn't be perfect, and it was temporary. That's what he's saying, and he's saying all those offerings that are going on even now, they're still not perfect because they're made by human beings, imperfect human beings, and we can struggle with this today because sometimes we put our faith, we put our trust in eternal, in in. in, in temporary things instead of eternal things. I mean, I think about this sometimes seeing people of faith that I looked up to. I read their books, and I thought they were awesome. And then learning that they had fallen in terrible ways, not just fallen, but lied about it and hidden it and kept it a secret for years. That, just one person in particular, it was devastating to me. It was devastating to me. I, I looked up to this person, really thought that, and it just shook me. And I can remember thinking, Who's my, who is my faith in here? Because Jesus is eternal. He can't fail. We just talked about it. He can't fail. Don't put your trust and your hope and your foundation in, in, in people. Don't put it in some speaker. Don't put it, 
don't put it in me. I'm a human being. Tomorrow I could fail. I'm not planning on it, all right? Not making plans, nothing like that. But I'm a human being. Don't put your faith in me. I'm just here talking about what God says. That's where we put our faith. That's where we put our trust. That's what we stand on. And he says these are eternal things. And there, there's lots of external things. You know, there's, there's lots of things going on in our world. We, we, we want peace in our world, in Ukraine, in the Middle East, in Yemen, in so many places. And we have, we have government agencies and international agencies that are working to pursue peace. And it's a good goal. And it's commendable. 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 But they're still flawed. Those are human beings. And the peace that they achieve, if they do, will be flawed. There will be winners and losers in that peace. It will be flawed. But in Christ, we have the high priest of the good things that are already, he says, already here. We have something right now. The Bible talks about a life that is here and now. Eternal life for us is not pie in the sky by and by. Eternal life is right now. We have it. We have it. And I just desperately want to go into the difference between bios and zoe, but I've done it so many times I won't. We have this life here and now. The changes start now. The culminations in the future. That's why, let me just push a little here. That's why when I meet a person who says, oh, Bob, yeah, I'm a Christian too, but they have no desire to honor God in their life. How can that be? How can that be? You have eternal life? You say you're a possessor of eternal life, but living for God is not even on your agenda? It's not even on your radar? You say you're a Christian? One of my favorite philosophers is in Diego Montoya in The Princess Bride, and I feel like saying, you keep using that word Christian. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? Because if you say you're a Christian, you are a possessor of eternal life. Life full of meaning, life full of purpose. It's yours right now. Right now. To be a Christian means you become a follower of Jesus Christ. To follow him, you are, it means you are in the process of becoming more like him. It means that you are working to make him the center of your life. We have demeaned the word Christian in our society, we've reduced it to some kind of cultural identity. We've reduced it to some sort of mere intellectual belief. There is a God. If I believe there's a God, somehow I'm a Christian. No, that's not it. That's not it. You're halfway there. Remember the stories. This is what I love as we start to talk about this stuff, how things come together. Remember the stories when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and he would say, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, and then he would paint a picture for them to understand how earth-shaking and life-changing and, 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 and shattering the kingdom of God is. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field, an unbelievable, unthinkable, incredible treasure. Now, what does any sane person do who finds this incredible treasure that actually has a little bit of integrity they, instead of stealing it? He buries the treasure back and he goes to the owner of the field and he says, I'd like to buy your field. 
right? Now, Jesus is not teaching us how to acquire real estate, okay? That's not what he's talking about. What did the man do? He took all his money, and when he talks about another, one of the illustrations, he says he sold everything he had, every bit of everything, and buys the field because the treasure dwarfs it in an immeasurable way. The pearl, one of the pearl of great price, it dwarfs everything he has in an immeasurable way. You have eternal life. It dwarfs everything else in your life in an immeasurable way. And he says to them, Jesus, when he was teaching, said, it's here. The kingdom of God, it's here. Start selling everything. It's here. Now, not literally start selling everything. What he's saying is start pushing everything aside and focusing on the thing that is more important than everything else, the kingdom of God. That's it right there. That's life-changing. That's life-altering. Entering into the kingdom of God, becoming a follower of Rabbi Jesus is life-altering. It's life-changing. It means that you're you're in the process of being changed to become more like him. Everything else is just old covenant. Everything else is just outward, temporary change. And you know, I, 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 I repeat myself so many. All parents here know how to achieve outward change to their child. When your child is little, you're bigger than them. You know? And they, they just do what you say. Because they got to. You feed them. You put them, you have a bed for them, you know, whatever. You, and, but you know on the inside, you haven't, you haven't made a dent. And this is the falsehood that so many parents fall for. They think that if their child is dressed nice, looks nice, polite, then, oh, I got a good kid. My dad was in the, and he, he was in the Air Force. He was an officer. And he drilled in us, the three sons, he drilled in us from when we were little. It was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am to everyone. I still do it. If you notice, some of you, I say, I say, hey, yes, sir, that's good. Or I'll say, you know, are you doing something? Yes, sir. I'll just say, it's, it's part of my life. I can't change it because it just, it just is in, indwelled in me, ingrained in me. And my dad, he beat us. He beat it into us. I mean, not, I, my dad didn't terribly beat us, but if, but if we, if we said to anyone older than ourselves, we had to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And he punished us if we didn't. He would catch us when we didn't and say, no, you don't do, no, you don't do that. You, this is how you treat people, right? So I was, uh, if you ever watched the old Leave it, I was Eddie Haskell. I was the politest kid on the block. I, I went back about 10 years ago. I went back and saw one of my old friends from uh, Wakefield High School <clears throat> in Arlington, Virginia. And, I, and his, he says, you know, my dad's still alive. I said, oh, he said, he's across the street. He'd love to see you. So I went across the street and saw Tommy's dad. And he goes, Bobby Mosley, you were my favorite. You were my favorite friend that Tommy had. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. You always said, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am. You were the most polite kid that I knew. At the same time, I was involved with it when we were teenagers, involved with Tommy in stealing stuff and doing things and treating people terrible and being horrible, being a terrible punk. I was a terrible punk and just doing 
bad things because it was fun to do bad things. I don't know how that works, but it was. And his dad said, that's the best kid. That kid's such a good influence on my Tommy. Right? See, we can change. We can make that outward thing. But if the heart doesn't change, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. And it took, after a few years of God, to get into my life and chase me down and change my heart. Now, it's still a process of changing. But it's happening. It's what he did. Um, It wasn't long after that that I met Bev and married her, and my parents, to, to their dying day, were pretty sure the reason I changed was Bev, Bev my wife, that uh, she had done this incredible change in my life, and a lot of the change in my life is because of her, but uh, God has this ability to change you from the inside out, from the inside out. It's life-changing. It's life-altering. It's not the old covenant. It's not temporary change. It's not outward. It becomes outward as it works out but you don't start with the outside. If you've accepted Christ as your savior, think about this. Verse 11, he says that that temple that's not made, that tabernacle is not made with human hands. He's saying, you're a part. It's not made with human hands. This is something eternal. You're a part of God's plan for this world and it is an eternal plan. So in verse 12, so Jesus passed he, passed, he bypassed the old covenant. In a sense, he fulfilled it. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, he entered by his own blood. He was the final sacrifice. Years and years, thousand years of temporarily covering sin. And then came Jesus, just, just like in Zechariah chapter three. My servant, my branch, that the living stone, he will take the sins away in one day. One moment for all time. Eternal redemption once for all. So we're freed from the curse of this world. People live and they work all their lives for what? Brief moments of pleasure? But often, if we're honest, it's painful days and it's restless nights. Look at this from, we did a study on, next slide, a study on Ecclesiastes a while back. And this is one of the verses that really stuck out to me. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun all their life, all their days? Their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Painful days and restless nights. He said, that's, is that life? Because we all have them, right? We all have painful days. We all have restless nights. But he's saying, So what does it matter? And this is what God says. In Ephesians chapter three, there's a passage where it talks about how angels, angelic powers, heavenly beings, witness us as we live on this earth. Three verse uh, 10, I think. And and it's this idea that even, because I I read this in a study, a a book by uh, Joni Erickson Tata, Johnny Erickson Tata, and she talked about when she had uh, broke her neck and she was paralyzed and she was in a room and there was a girl who was, who was on, the, uh, on an iron lung and um, basically just her head sticking out of this giant metal contraption that was keeping her alive. And she couldn't move, she couldn't talk, nothing. And after her accident, 
friends from, from school would come and her family would come. And, and Johnny Erickson Hodder was saying, and after a while, that kind of petered out. And her mom would come. And he said her mom would read her scripture. And her mom would tell her, you know, God's doing something. I don't know what, da, 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 like that. And Johnny was saying, I don't see what God's doing. There's no one here. There's no one here to worship, to, to, to witness this, to see as she reads to her and sings with her. And sometimes she would read and sing and a tear would come out of it. That's the only expression she could do. And she said, so it was worthless. It meant nothing. I don't understand what God's doing here because it's worthless. And a friend told her, Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that the angels, someone was watching This is so hard. We have this eternal redemption. In painful days and in restless nights, God promises that your pain and your restlessness and your struggle will be redeemed. He promises he will bring good out of it. He doesn't promise this, that you will know exactly what it is. He doesn't promise that. He promises that he will work and he will redeem and he will bring good. And I don't know, maybe it will only be for the benefit of the angels to worship him more, to see what a great God he is. Maybe that'll be it. I don't know. But he promises that. It is not wasted. So we have an eternal redemption. Starts right now. Slides into eternity. The tabernacle was temporary because... What was being accomplished there was only being done by created beings, human beings, and bulls and goats, and it had to be repeated because it didn't quite do it. But this salvation is eternal because it was purchased by an eternal being and is once for all. And next slide, and it has a purpose. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God, so that we may serve the living God. There's a purpose here. How much more? That's a, they call it a P then Q argument. If this is true, then this is true. If this is true, then how much more is this true, I should say? Comparing, and so what is he doing? He's comparing the mortal with the immortal, the temporal with the eternal. So how much more? He says, look, look, we're talking about human beings, who live, whatever, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, maybe 100. And then they're gone. And we're comparing them with Jesus, who has no beginning and no end. It's not close. It's not close. And notice in this verse, the whole Trinity is involved in salvation. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who, all, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God the Father, We have the Trinity working together. We talked about that before, this dance of the Trinity that is mutually submissive and loving and and all of this. And he invites us in and he says, look, the whole Trinity was involved in your salvation. That's how much God loves you. It wasn't like Jesus said, well, I'll go. I love them. God and the Spirit said, yeah, okay. That's what you want to do. No, they were involved in it too. And they still are. They still are. There's no comparison, and there's a purpose so that we could serve the living God. Imagine 
being a part of the greatest story ever told. Imagine being involved in setting free millions and millions of enslaved peoples. Imagine being part of discovering the purpose and the meaning of the universe. Imagine being a part of bringing joy and purpose and meaning to this whole world. That's you. You don't have, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in it. You're a part. This purpose, this meaning, this joy to be a part of God's plan for the universe. Nothing else compares. Nothing else comes close. Or you can just take this life and serve yourself and see how that works out for you. See how that works out for you. I just would love to impress upon you that there is no comparison to what Jesus has done for us. So what do we do with this? A little application. First of all, next slide. I said this before, but I reemphasize this. Relief from guilt involves learning the truth and putting it into action. Learn the truth and apply it to yourself. When those thoughts intrude, you're a loser. You're worthless. You're a terrible sinner. You say, what does God say about me? What does God say about my sins? Who does God say I am? And you think of that. You answer those thoughts with truth. So that's one thing. Another thing is this. What are you doing with your life? This is something we need to think about sometimes. We need to stop every once in a while and just consider, what am I doing with my life? Who am I living for right now? What are my goals and how do they align with Jesus' plan? And then, you know, there have been parts of this book that have just hit me, just hit me. One of them was Jesus is our brother now and it says he is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us. I can remember a time when my, one of my brothers was ashamed of me. And I think I was five or six. And it's still clear, and the pain is still there. I mean, I know we're different, and I know he did love me. I mean, I know that. He cannot fail. This is another one. It's not, he's not ashamed of us. And now we look at this because he is the immortal, eternal God. He cannot fail. All others fail. All others fail. He can't. Remind yourself of that. You are putting your life in the hands of the one person who can never fail. That is an incredible comfort, even in the most difficult of times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you, the Father, the Spirit, and the the Son were all intimately involved in our salvation because of your great love for us and that you went to great cost and expense, the expense of your only Son's life to give us this salvation. Lord, help us to never take it for granted. Help us to leave this place understanding that we need the truth and we need to apply it to our lives. We need to evaluate and think about what we're doing. And also, Lord, that we need to rest on the foundation that you will never fail us. And Lord, we praise you for that. You are a great God. In Jesus' name, amen.